for the Los Angeles Review of Books. I'm Colin Marshall. This is the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast coming to you from Santa Monica, California. Today I'm speaking with Leslie Jameson, who's the author of a novel, The Gin Closet, and a new book of essays called The Epathy Exams. Leslie, tell me, tell me about the difference you see in, in your writing between the scale of working, uh, working at a novel scale and working at the scale of an essay. When you had to look back on the material that comes together in The Epathy Exams, what do you notice that's different about you as you at, I don't know, full-scale, novel-scale, full-length novel-scale, and essay-scale? Um, well, one of the things that I found really liberating about writing essays, which is not to say that this can't work at the scale of a novel, but just for me it felt easier to indulge this on the scale of a single essay, was um, granting myself permission to take detours. So um, with the novel, I felt like I was hewing a little bit more closely to, you know, two lives and the chronologies of unfolding events that Mm -hmm. those lives entailed. Um, And I did, I gave, I granted myself detours, but they were more detours in terms of I'm going to make a flashback into the past Mm -hmm. um, or I'm going to skip ahead a few months into the future. Um, But it was still sort of, I'm tracking this life, this consciousness. With the essays, one of the things that I found really exciting was just that it felt very easy for me to veer in a different direction and trust that a reader would follow me or at least ask the reader to follow me. So um, one of the pieces in the collection, uh, which is called Fog Count, is about, oh, I thought at the beginning, I thought it was just going to be a profile of this um, ultra marathoner that I'd gotten to know who was incarcerated in West Virginia. But when I went to visit him, I it, you know, at, in West Virginia, where he was incarcerated, I found that the piece I wanted to write, I, I wanted that piece to be about other things. I wanted it to be about Charlie, but I also wanted it to be about um, mining and incarceration as two industries in the same state. I wanted well, you, you wanted it to be about that, or the essay itself wanted to be about well, that. Well, I guess I. I wanted it to be about that. I mean, this- you had some pre-existing interest in incarceration and mining, and thought, "Hey, here's a, here's something that brings those together." Or did they, the essay, bring those two subjects out and made you think, "Well, this incarceration and mining could be something. There could be something here." There was definitely that. There was definitely that element of surprise, rather than it being predetermined that I was like, "I have these two pet interests." You know, what, what which state of the union can bring them together best? But um, <laughs> I, <laughs> I did find that it's not off in West Virginia. <laughs> I know West Virginia can do the task no other state can handle. Um what yeah I I I think it was the experience of actually going to a place um or following a more reported version of telling a story that sort of opened me up mm-hmm. to it being about things that that were different from what I'd um sort of previously imagined. But I guess the reason that I, I like to say I wanted it to be about those things rather than the essay wanted it to be about those things was I, I sometimes feel uncomfortable with the way that writers mystify the process by ascribing agency to the text or the character. You hear it a lot in fiction. The yes, characters... They had, a, they had a life of their own. They, I, they were telling me own. what to write every morning. I can't believe it. I don't write fiction, but I hear it. It's like a super cliche, right? Yeah. I mean, and I get what people are... I mean, I get what people are evoking when they talk about characters speaking back to them or surprising them. I mean, I think it is this attempt to describe what happens when... Mm-hmm a text is alive enough to kind of breathe and to stretch whatever structures you want to put around it. But um, I think with the essays, 
part of what I felt was that I could honor the ways that my mind was connecting disparate points um, and that I didn't feel confined to any given narrative structure. I didn't feel confined to any given genre, like memoir reporting or cultural criticism or whatever. I felt like, okay, these things are colliding in my mind and they seem to be producing some kind of electricity in my mind. So I'm just going to let that happen on the page. That way you frame it of connecting points, connecting points of thought in an essay, it strikes me as, as pretty clarifying because I remember somebody asking me a while ago, they, they couldn't really process. It was just someone who wasn't a writer and they couldn't process the concept of writing an essay. Like how do you go to a, say a part of Los Angeles to write about it? And how do you get, 1500 words out of it to, to put up. And I was, I tried to say a less articulate version of what you said, which was, well, you're going to go around and you have certain thoughts. And then writing the essay is making all those thoughts be coherent together. You know what I mean? Is that an essay writing? Is that essay writing for you? Getting, having seemingly disparate thoughts and the task is then, how can this be a linear flow that connects them or that they've, I, the metaphor is breaking down, but. Right. No, but the meta, no, the, the, the metaphor is, is building on itself in my heart because it resonates a lot. And, um, I mean, I do think that a lot of my experiences, especially with essays that are more place focused does have to do with getting my body somewhere and picking up as much material as I can. And then later trying to figure out the bones of how it might be related. Um, and I actually, I mean, we should talk more at some point, but I did that. I was trying to write an essay about the Los Angeles River at one mm. point that it's defeated many a writer, <laughs> maybe I, all of them. Actually. Well, it's such a compelling, I mean, I feel like all you have to do is just look at at least certain stretches of the river where it's just that kind of concrete wasteland. Sort of the northern half of it, essentially. Yeah. yeah. And like, just a little trickle of water and, and there's there is something really compelling about sort of what what has man been up to in this space you know and but it was right. exactly that I, I you know i actually took my dad out with me and just hit the river in three different spots mm -hmm. and kind of tried to take its temperature in a way like what what's the community like here what is what does the river look like here what part of los angeles are we in like how how is the community relating to the river and this, you know, and, and that essay hasn't totally come together yet, but it was very much an example of this process where you sort of plunge yourself into something because it draws you, even if you don't know exactly what the story is going to mm. be yet. When does an essay come together for you? It's not just hitting word count, is it? No, it's definitely... Some of it is really, and now I'm going to use exactly the kind of mystifying language that I was disparaging earlier, but... um. There's something corporeal, like I know that I know that I found one of the veins or through lines of an essay when I can feel myself getting excited about it. Um, I can feel the writing kind of coming a little faster and furiouser. Um, and I think sometimes, sometimes I get to that vein by discovering some sort of emotional current or question. Sometimes I get to that vein by yeah, letting the essay become more inclusive, letting it be about West Virginia, not just this particular guy. Sometimes I get to that vein by making some sort of structural choice. Like um, uh, another one of the essays in the collection, this piece called Morphology of the Hit. Um, I'm talking about getting hit in the face in Nicaragua mugging, uh, but 
what really, I, I mean, I tried to write about that a few different times, but what really helped the essay click into focus for me was w- deciding to tell the story in terms of this kind of obscure early 20th century Russian formalist named Vladimir Prop, who breaks down traditional fairy folk tales into various kinds of narrative moves. So the hero gets a magical helper, the hero encounters the villain, the hero gets married. So I thought, well, what if I literally took all these pieces and tried to tell my own story using them? And it was that almost lab experiment that started to make me feel really excited. Like, okay, this essay, it wasn't finished yet, but I felt like I knew what it was going to be and what shape it was going to take. I feel like there's... There's probably less than I come away feeling like from the book, but there's, it feels like there's a lot of you getting bones broken or falling down, or there's, there was another injury you sustained in the, in the book, right? Where you had to get, uh, you had to get something reconstructed. There were, there was the Nicaragua incident, but there was, there's more than that. There's the, uh, what, what am I thinking of? You might be thinking of in the last essay, I described very briefly, um, my jaw was broken. Yes, the wired jaw. That's right. The wired jaw. Yeah. No, I mean, from my end, it feels like lots of things have been broken and damaged too. I mean, it's, right. it's, it, in that sense, if it's funny because, um, and I'm going to try not to do that thing where I quibble with reviewers, but, um, <laughs> one thing that struck me in, um, you know, I thought the review in the, uh, Sunday, New York Times book review is really beautiful and intelligent and um, love. I mean, I felt really honored by it, but one of the things it said was that the essay, the essays kind of return to certain sites of damage continually and reintroduce them as if they hadn't been mentioned before. And that was interesting to me kind of on an intuitive level. I mean, I had my, I rose up in resistance on, on an aesthetic level, but on an intuitive level, I, I feel like actually there's a lot of my own damage that I left out because I didn't feel like it belonged. So, I mean, I think what I'm aware of are some of the margins where, you know, uh, when you have your jaw wired shut for a couple months, there's actually more than a sentence to say about right. that, but there's only a sentence in the book. So, um, I mean, that's the nature of essays general in terms of personal experience or anything else. Like you write what feels necessary, but within that, necessary material, there are a thousand little doorways that you could open up and then there would be, you know, essays and essays beyond Mm -hmm. that too. What I guess is going on with these impressions, if I had to just cast this out there is there's these, there's a couple of individual mentions of your own injuries. And then there's so much writing in general about the the subject of pain Mm -hmm. in the essays and the whole book that they kind of get conflated in the reader's mind, like your injuries and all the other ones become one long procession of injuries. And they, they I mean, I don't know if readers will always just ascribe them all. They'll, they'll think of, they'll think it's you talking about your own injuries endlessly, but they will, they will come away uh, feeling like a lot of people are getting hurt in these essays, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, 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 I do think there's a lot of do think there's a lot of pain in this collection. It's interesting. Um, we were originally going to call the collection the empathy exams and then the subtitle, which now is just essays was mm-hmm. going to be essays on pain. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, in a way that subtitle would have been accurate. And um, part of the reason I was pushing back against that subtitle was because I want pain is here, but I also want 
the essays to be about more than that. And mm. I want, there's a moment in the final essay when I say, um, the suffering is interesting, but so is getting better. And I want these essays to, to also be about the ways in which, um, people make something out of pain, whether that, whether that something is a deepened desire to look at other people's lives or whether that something is a kind of community or whether that something is greater self-awareness or you know, curiosity or whatever the something is I'm interested in, in, in the products and an aftermath of pain as well. Um, but yeah, a lot of people, a lot of people get hurt in these essays. And I mean, a lot of people get hurt in the world, you know, and that, I mean, that's another kind of deep reaction I have to, ch I guess, charges of like trauma mongering or something. It's like, it's, is that a, is that a term? It's, a, <laughs> well, I guess you're right. I am, I invent, it, may be. I, 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 it's, it sounds like something, it sounds like a charge that gets thrown around a lot, like on parts of the internet that I don't go on much. You know right, what I mean? Right, 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 right. Yeah. I think I, right. I, the truth is, is I think it, it, it's a, it's a term that I have in, invented to describe the way that I project other people criticize me. <laughs> so ah. whatever there's the probably German has a word for what more than one and they're long compound <laughs> yeah. nouns, but the abandoned subtitle essays on pain almost seems more broad than just essays in some way, like essays on pain that, you just read that on the spine of a book and it would seem to cover so much ground. But then I think of the essay at the end of the book, you mentioned the one on female pain. And I think even though that's, that sounds specific, it's like the pain of a group, of a group, of a group of three billion people. It seems like, how do you, how do you go about narrowing it down from there? Because that's yeah. impossibly, yeah. that's impossibly large a subject. Yes, when you're taking yes. half, half of humanity, it still doesn't, it still almost doesn't mean anything unless you dial it down further. Totally. And that's actually, I mean, that's why I, to me, the title of that essay is funny. And I, or I hope that it's kind of funny to mm. people as they read it too. I mean, grand, precisely for that reason, like, it's bigness and kind yeah. of recognizing the impossible bigness of this. Okay. Grand unified theory of female pain. It was funny. Um, Virginia quarterly review, uh, put that essay out, um, just at the beginning of the month and they, they cut it or we cut it together from up. It's about 12,000 words in the book to, um, cl closer to eight or nine. And I <laughs> wanted to convince them to call it partially, partially unified theory of female pain in its 8,000 word form. Um, yes. but the, the point being as, as you're getting to very smartly that, you know, that it is a vast subject and how do you try to break it open? Um, and I think that to some extent that the essayist is always taking that on you. If you're willing to speak about anything that, that matters, you have to be willing to take on the kind of burden and risk and shame of speaking about it in a partial and incomplete way. Um, but I, I still think it's better to endeavor that than not. Mm. But, um, in, but it, with that essay, I think one of some of the strategies that I employed to crack open this infinite subject, um, I used, well, one thing was that I used a kind of structuring device from, uh, a poem that I love very much called the glass essay by Anna Carson. And, um, you know, she has this series of, um, nudes that progress through that poem. And each nude is a, a vision of her, her speaker's own soul. And, um, I s deployed that structure to kind of line up a series of almost anecdotal 
visions through that essay because I do, I do think that these issues, it's not that the anecdotes would provide something comprehensive, but that so many of these issues get more interesting the more specific you get. So the anecdotes range from experiences that friends of mine have had, experiences that I've had, um, scenes, you know, I talk about the, um, opening shower locker room scene from Carrie. I talk about a moment from the TV show girls when two friends are accusing each other of playing the wounded card. You're the wound. No, you're the wound. Um, I talk about some of the singers that I grew up with, Ani DeFranco and Tori Amos. Um, so I really just let myself go, go kind of build this totally crazy collage. Um, Mm. But with 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 an with an idea of sort of um, building um, building towards a certain marshalling of imperative, um, mm-hmm. but yeah, that definitely that definitely was a big struggle when I was writing that essay. My head kind of hurt for two months straight because <laughs> I was feeling the three billion personness of it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> right, it's almost like. If you're not talking about the pain of one person and you're not talking about the pain of all humanity, that's that vast middle area is where it's the most difficult, right? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. There is, um, there is a lot of challenge that happens in toggling between scales. I think I'm thinking a little bit about, uh, this psychologist at Yale, whose um, mind I respect quite a bit, this guy, Paul Bloom, who wrote a piece in the New Yorker last year that was called The Baby in the Well, a, a Case Against Empathy. And part of what his his case against empathy w- was exactly about this question of scale. So he's all about empathy on the level of the individual and sort of our personal relationships. But he feels like on these broader human scales that actually it can lead our moral reasoning astray. So, um, you know, the baby at the bottom of the well immediately has hundreds of thousands of dollars donated towards her college account while, you know, like I said, plenty of children in the world don't have anything to eat tomorrow. So this way that's sort of the way we attach to particular narratives can actually do some kind of damage to how we're thinking about improving quality of life on a broader Mm -hmm. scale. And so that got me thinking like, what are the ways in terms of a kind of civic responsibility, what are the ways that we can kind of harness the energy of how we do attach? I mean, it's just human. It's, it's human nature, I think, to attach to particular stories rather than general realities. So how can we kind of harness the energy of that particularity to motivate around um, broader, more nebulous crises? Mm. Now, in the, in the essays, you do, correct me if I'm wrong, you do at some point, uh, do, do you cite David Foster Wallace or do you reference him directly? I can't remember if his, his name appears in your essays at all. It must. That's actually a great question. He's so much in my head yeah. that um, I feel like he must be in that collection, yeah. although I'm actually not. Yeah, I can't come up sure with an actual is. instance, yeah. but I feel like it, it must be because reviewers and interviewers would bring him up. They seem to bring him up quite frequently when talking about your essays. So I do, I do remember where he comes up. Sorry, oh, I talk is. about him. Um, I talk about him in my essay on sentimentality, mm-hmm. where I talk about um, how he used to be a figure, kind of defending a certain sort of sentimentality, mm-hmm. and now he sort of defends that uh, uh, his specter defends that as a kind of right. ghost. Anyway, he might come, he might come up somewhere right. else, but, but you do, you do cite him. I think reviewers probably saw that and then they felt even more 
free to make comparisons between what you're writing and what he, what he wrote, but I feel like you mentioned empathy. And after he died, after David Foster Wallace died, and when The Pale King was out for a good year or two after that, I feel like a lot of us were all talking about empathy, and then just sort of stopped. Like, when did when did that that conversation just sort of petered out? Uh, it, it was in the wake of David Foster Wallace's death we all reevaluated and highly revalued empathy as as a, as the tool of the writer or the essayist, and then it was just kind of like, well, what's what's next, you know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's funny. I I sometimes don't feel that good at tracing the contours of these big cultural patterns, like when, what, what terms or ideas are big at a given time, because, you know, I, I think that there have been plenty of people thinking about empathy, uh, whether or not they're using that particular word, but thinking about sort of trying to be, be, um, put, you know, sort of how to place ourselves in, in, in some kind of proximity to other people's lives and understand other people's experiences. I think that, I think that lots of writers have been doing that, but I do think that David Foster Wallace was a tremendous voice, um, speaking out on behalf of attention. And I'm not gonna be able to quote it precisely, but he, there's a quote of his that I was thinking about when you said that thing about, you know, sort of, you're talking about the pain of 3 billion people. Um, he talks about, he basically talks about how, you know, all six or seven billion of us are special and like that he's sort of like, you know, you're special. The guy who lives across the street from you, who's like fixing up his old 87 Camaro and raising two kids on his own while he's sober. He's special. All seven billion of us are special. And I think that he really was attuned to the, 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 kind of particular wonder of any given human psyche, but also the fact that, you know, so much is common and interchangeable between us and that's real too, you know, and, and we sort of owe each other, we owe each other some commitment to paying attention to like all of these very ordinary others that we encounter in the grocery store, or in a traffic jam on the 405 or, you know, wherever he has, I mean, thinking also about his yeah. commencement address and how those ideas play out there. But it's of course a desire anybody has reading to, to read essays like yours or, or his and think, Oh, I felt exactly that way. That's described there on the page, but it's sort of more interesting to me, the moments where you're reading somebody, you're reading somebody and, and you go along like that. You think, Oh, I felt that way. I felt that way. I felt that way. And then you hit something like, Whoa, I've never <laughs> felt that way. Like so, you know, a feeling pre or perception perce presented as like, Oh, this is everybody. This is how everyone feels. Right. And then right. you hit it. And you, well, hold on. I do. Have you had those moments as a reader? Oh my God. Well, I'll try to answer that question, but now I'm so curious. That's a, about where you hit those moments. And, and if, mm -hmm. if you hit those moments or where in my collection, cause it's a fascinating, mm. it's kind of fascinating motion of mind. Mm to describe the, I'm with you, I'm with you, I'm with you. I'm not uh, with you anymore. Needle scratching on the record sound. Is all <laughs> well, I'm thinking it makes the way you describe it makes me think about those awkward moments in conversation where, where, you know, two people are just resonating and being like, Oh my God. Yeah. It's mm -hmm. totally like when you, you know, steal like candy from the gas station and like, ah, or like when you steal like clothes from the store and be like, oh, I'd never steal clothes. <laughs> like I would, you know, and somebody just like backs out of the contract yeah. of like, Hold we on. share everything. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, have I had those moments? Um, I mean, I certainly, I mean, I actually had some of those moments. I mean, I'm thinking about it cause we're talking about Wallace, but 
I have had moments like that in Infinite Jest, which mm. I think is one of the beauties of Infinite Jest, that it takes kind of deeply common um, human varieties of longing and self-destruction and all that and just takes them to these um, incredibly both like dark and absurd places. Mm. And I think so part of the pleasure of that book is for me and, and, and just impact of that book is sort of toggling between moments of resonance and like, Oh, that feels right to me. And, you know, it's like resonance in one moment. And then it's like, you know, a crack addict stealing a woman's <laughs> prosthetic <laughs> heart from her yes. purse in another moment. So right. it's, right. then again, it is a novel. So yeah. there, you always have a fiction thing to go to, but right. when somebody is ostensibly writing as them, as themselves and the, they're trying to, it seems like they're trying to get their exact thoughts and impressions out on the page. It all, it's always fascinating when their impressions suddenly diverge from yours, not even their, and not even their morals or their, judgments but just the way they see things you know yeah. there was just the way they experience things and it's not necessarily off-putting but those seem to be the most interesting moments where they just suddenly you realize oh they're seeing this a whole different way than i am right yeah yeah mm-hmm. um well I, I am wondering whether there were mm-hmm. sort of uh pieces that gave you some version of that experience well, not not the whole like screech of the tires necessarily <laughs> but i suppose there are, there are plenty of I don't know if this counts, but you, you talk about arguments you would get into with, with boyfriends who are also writers or poets, and there would be conversations about, uh, conversations very much tied up in the ways that, that, uh, you're both expressing your anxiety or both, you're expressing your, you're expressing your feelings in mutually incompatible ways. Like, I feel like it's, maybe this is, you were, you were writing, I've never had these kind of conversations, but maybe it's because it's, uh, I've never had that one of these writer and writer relationships. You know what I mean? Yeah. Maybe this is just a version of every couple's conversation, or maybe it's. Do you think? Do you think it is distinctive to to hyper verbal pe- verbal people getting together? They fall into that stuff. You know, this is an experience I I can identify with less. Not necessarily a perception I identify right, with right, less. Right, right, yeah. Or maybe there's just weren't the right. right right relationships too. There are many possibilities on the table. Yeah, I mean, I do. I mean, that question opens up a big question for me about the collection, which is when I use words like we, like some kind of first person plural, what community am I speaking for too? And I guess I was thinking about that because it's like, okay, I describe certain kinds of arguments that might happen within relationships, but maybe those arguments are actually specified to a very small subset of like hyper literate, hyper self-conscious, mm. overeducated, extremely mm. privileged people, you know? And, mm. um, and I, I want, I, I want to be sensitive to, I find myself lapsing into the we sometimes mm. because I kind of want to gather readers round and right. think about questions communally, but I'm also aware of what can be loaded or vexed or troubling about the we because, when I say we, I mean, who am I speaking for? Like I, you know, whose experience is mine and what sorts of boundaries or communities am I kind of implicitly mapping in terms of things like privilege or you who have read this far into this book and me, the writer, you know, the, we, the, we gets more defined as you go in that way, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point actually, that Mm. it's sort of, 
once you've shared the terrain of a book, that in and of itself can be grounds for a kind of relationship. Yeah. We on page one could be anybody. It could be right. somebody looking at the, you know, they just got off the jacket flap, but now they're right. looking at page one. Right. It could be right. someone right. off the street. Right, right, mm. yeah. Mm. You mentioned earlier the show Girls, uh, and I've, I haven't seen that show yet. But I think I've officially missed the boat at this point. But I was listening to an interview with the Lena Dunham this morning, the creator of the show, and I feel like those what you just said you were afraid of, like the converse being accused of being accused of saying we when you mean uh, anxious and overeducated people in a certain part of America. That's the same criticism that gets leveled or used to be leveled at girls. Mm-hmm. I don't know, but it's a successful show, so mm-hmm. you'd think it has to speak beyond a group that's specific to succeed in the way it has. Wouldn't it have to, or would it have to? Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. Um, and I do think, I mean, I do think that works of art, whether they're books, novels, essays, TV shows, whatever, can and do speak to people who are not within the direct demographic that that piece of art is about. I mean, mm. and I felt that in every possible way. I've felt it as a reader reading a book about people who are completely different from me in all these ways, but maybe I, you know, uh, either something in their story resonates with me or maybe nothing resonates, but I'm interested anyway. I mean, there are so many ways that we can be compelled and we're not only compelled, um, by people who are like us. And I, I actually really believe that I believe in thinking about art as something that doesn't just reflect taste or desire, but can produce it or coax it or, um, reshape it, redefine it. And so I, I, I guess I'm interested in, in kinds of writing that don't just sort of say, well, this is what, this is what the need or desire is. So this is how it can be filled, but yeah. how might I seduce my readers to be interested in this thing that they yeah. might not have known they had the potential to be interested in? Right. It, it brings to mind the challenge, especially today of writing. I don't even want to say criticism because that sounds academic, but reviews of things, you know, you want to, I'll put it this way. When you're, where, where do, where do, where where does essay turn into review, review turn back into essay? Those, what forms do those relationships have to each other in your mind? Mm -hmm. Because there's at least one piece in, in your book that you could call, it's not really a review because it's longer, but it is based on a specific series of documentaries and you're, you're, it's a, it, the, the essay results from you watching them, uh, watching them hard. I don't know, but you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I, and I think I've, I've, I've written all kinds of things that are hybrids between reviews and essays and a, a few of them show up in this book, but, um, a bunch of them don't. Um, and I think, uh, well, I'm thinking about pieces actually that I've written for, uh, the LA review of books, but, um, one piece that I wrote about, um, the, uh, an exhibit of civil war photography at the Met, um, mm-hmm. another piece that I wrote about, um, a show, a film called short term 12, mm-hmm. um, that, it, you know, in a sense, it was kind of like that piece about the Paris lost, um, uh, documentaries about the West Memphis three. And so far as I was writing about the object, but I was also writing about my reaction to the object. So in the essay on on short term 12, I was um, writing about uh, moments when I cried and thinking about what it means when we cry at movies and what that emotion holds or produces. Um, But I think that gets to the bleed for me, a kind of inevitable bleed between a review and an essay, because if I'm talking about any kind of object, 
often the most interesting or loaded material has mm. to do with my reaction to that object. And my reaction to that object goes everywhere inside me. It goes into my past. It goes into my thoughts about other objects. And yeah. so in that sense, then it becomes what we commonly call the terrain of the essay. But, um, I, I often just don't see the value in drawing distinctions between. And I think mm. sometimes what makes you draw a distinction is something like word count, you know, where mm. if you, you know, when I, I don't really write these anymore, but, uh, I used to write book review, newspaper book reviews and, you know, I'd maybe have 850 words and, you know, in that space, you know, there's not time to riff about your grandma on 850 yeah. words or there could be, but you're <laughs> it's true. Although when I read a review of a movie or a book or what have you, I always want to, I always want to hear more of what, or even if, if it's a fixed word count, I'd rather hear 800 words about what that book or film made the writer think about rather than them struggling to reach a verdict, which, you know, maybe, right. maybe they won't, maybe they won't even, I'm sure they won't hold that opinion very strongly. And probably the next day they might hold the opposite. So there's not a lot of value in a straight evaluation, but there is in uh, connections, I guess. Right. Yeah. And I, and that's part of why I, I love kind of longer form pieces and um, because they have that potential to to draw connections and draw unexpected connections and you know i often find myself gaining kind of intellectual traction mm. more when i'm thinking about associations than when i'm thinking about verdicts like mm. i really like that distinction because i can get really paralyzed if somebody asks me what did you think of this? Did you think this was good? Did you think this was good is a very paralyzing question to same, me. Yeah, this, I have the same experience. I think many people secretly do, but don't want to admit it. So. Right. Yeah. The emperor is wearing no opinions. Um, yeah. but the, but, 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 but the question, what did this make you think of, or what does this feel related to? That is like a totally freeing and exciting question to me. Right. Like I want to answer that question. Well, you can answer it. That it helps that you can actually answer it honestly. Whereas right. with did you, did you? I don't even think did you like it. I could really answer. I, I, like right after a movie, you know, if it's if the credits just stopped and someone asks you what did you think of it, it's like, well, I can tell you what I was thinking about, but I just I just watched it. You know, give me yeah. ten years. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I do. Um, I think that. And I, and I, I'd like to, one kind of piece that I've toyed around with, I mean, it's a, it's a very general structural idea, but, um, is thinking about how our perceptions of either a cultural object or an event in our own lives change over time. So almost like an archaeological essay where mm. the first part of the essay was written, you know, right after seeing a movie or right after experiencing some kind of event, but that the subsequent layers of the essay are like, well, this is what it looked like six mm -hmm. months later. And this is what this, or this is what it felt like, or this is what I thought about it a year yeah. later, or 18 months later. And kind of that almost like, um, like call it in physics, like the Doppler effect of how yeah. science the fr frequency of sound changes as an object moves closer or further, like mm -hmm. thinking about a kind of chronology of perceiving mm -hmm. a thing. Cause people talk a lot with memoir, especially about, um, writing about, you know, I think Philip Lopate sometimes gets, um, 
you know, I don't, I don't want to reduce his, his, his in- intelligent points about essays and personal essays by paraphrasing them. But, you know, he's a real advocate of the kind of reflective voice mm-hmm. and, um, re- you know, giving yourself space to reflect on experience in an essay, which I, I'm also totally an advocate for, but I'm kind of interested in the possibilities of talking about something from a really raw place where you don't yeah. know what to make of something yet. Yes. And then, and, but then putting that alongside what it looks like from the, you know, rear view right. mirror of intelligent retrospective introspection, like those two visions alongside each other, that's really compelling to me. As uh, Anthony Lane in the New Yorker said, uh, he's the, the, one of the film critics there. Wait, uh, wait 10 years or give the immediate impression. One or the other, you, there's nothing in the middle. It, it's, you have to, it's either, Fresh right then, or the time is time is told. Time is told its own verdict. But it reminds me of um, a, a writer of, of a place, I guess, Lawrence Osborne. I was interviewing a while ago a book about Bangkok. He wrote. He was saying, I, I was thinking about Bangkok, and indeed, I think about every city as a as a place where it's like with a person. You have a relationship. You know, you'll meet a friend in elementary school. You won't see them for a while. Maybe you'll hang out with them again for a period of a few years. You'll revisit them ten years after that. But the point is, you've the relationship began and it continued in various contexts. And then you write about that. And it's the same with a work of art, right? Yeah. I mean, and I, and, um, I, I, and I kind of love that idea that, and I think this gets back to kind of resisting verdict, mm-hmm. verdictness, because I feel like it's kind of anti verdict to think about, well, how many different perspectives can I see this thing from, whether those are different time periods or, um, sort of different, temporally different, like how it looks from different stages in my life or from different places. I love that. I love thinking about it in relation to a person that you knew when you were young or, Mm. you know, catch up with at different times. I think about that, um, great British, the BBC seven up series. Yeah. Where it, I mean, part of the brilliance of that series is just that it, uh, hooks into such a primal human fascination. We're, if we see somebody, we're interested in what they're like seven years later, you know, like that, um, just kind of that tension between continuity and change, seeing the same person Mm. leading a different life because time has passed like that. Um, that connects to something really primal. And I, and it would be interesting to think about, I don't know, the kind of seven up possibilities, but in terms not of how a life is lived, but how we think about a piece of art or. I realize a lot of the names of these writers I've mentioned are English. And of course the seven up movies are also English and it's an English director. And he says that it's for some reason, it's always Americans who ask him this when he talks about his, his work uh, they're always amazed that none of the none of the kids have died yet. I mean, they're only fifty six yet, but it's, he says it's always it's only ever Americans who ask that. Like, no one's dead, really. Uh, I don't know if that says anything about the American perspective or what it takes to write or make something for an American perspective. But is that is that something you think about? Do you do you do you think of because you, many of your personal experiences involve you know, being in other places, places that aren't America. But do you think of yourself as writing for a particular, a particular part of the, uh, part of the English speaking world, say? I mean, I know you have, you've had translation as well, but what do you, do you, do you think of an American audience at all? Because some essayists like David Foster Wallace or John Jeremiah Sullivan were really, they're, you can see them mastering a really American form of writing in the essay. So what, do you, do you, is the essay tied up at all with nationality in your mind? That's a great question. Um, I mean, I, 
I don't find myself consciously thinking, I think about nationality inside certain pieces. Mm. Like, you know, when I write about Bolivian silver mines, I think about what it means that I'm an American tourist inside those Bolivian silver mines. But I don't necessarily think about nationality in the sense of do I, am I writing my essays for a national audience? Do I think of them as kind of national in their focus? Because I, I am interested in, in, in place in both an international and an international way. Like I sort of, I, I find myself, my interest moves across those boundaries. And so the essays do also. Um, I, I was struck when, my novel came out, we couldn't sell it to, we didn't manage to sell it to a British publisher. And I remember some of what came back from British publishers was, well, this seems, this novel just feels a bit too American. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I actually believe publishers, I mean, the bottom line is the publishers, you know, they love it or they don't, you know, and that's fair. Mm -hmm. Um, but I remember thinking, God, like, what kind of, what kind of reason is that? Like, you know, I'm interested in reading about other countries, like other countries should be interested in reading about me. (laughs) But, um, but what, but this, this collection sold very quickly to a British publisher and I'll be really interested in, I mean, I've already gotten reactions on individual pieces from, you know, um, people who are in England, but I'll be interested in sort of how, nationality, whether I, whether I feel like the British responses are different Mm -hmm. in some palpable way to American responses, like Mm -hmm. whether that ends up feeling like a kind of relevant distinction and how the essays are received. Mm -hmm. I was thinking about this, uh, something kind of connected to the issue of the, the broadly put the, uh, the, the pain of women or was it, is it the, the female pain or the pain of women? That's a better, that's a better one to reference the concept in that essay with. Is there a difference there? Well, that's a great question. I mean, I guess I would say you're on safe ground with female pain just female because pain. I use it. So female pain it is, but, uh, I was thinking female pain. If, if it's, if it's compelling for a female writer to write about female pain, is it more compelling for that female American writer to write about, say, American pain, because that's a group of 300 million. It's comparatively very tight knit <laughs> compared to 3 billion. Do, do, do you know what I mean? Does that, does that hold, uh, moving from context to context there? Should, should American pain be even more compelling somehow if you're in a smaller group that's, that's, uh, feeling it? Well, I mean, I, you know, I think that, I think there are kind of cultural factors that you can look at. And I think, you know, cultural reference points, certain, you know, certain women, certain TV shows, certain icons of feminism might be more relevant to American women than um, in international context. So in that sense, they sort of work as there, there are constellations of certain cultural points that work right. to unify certain cultural bodies. But and if you're down to American women, that's 150 million. So it's a very close group at that point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. It gets to, I, I mean, I, 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 the, all these, all of these communities and bodies are so huge that it starts to feel like incredibly, um, hubristic to tackle any of them. But, um, but yes, I guess comparatively tight knit. Um, yeah. And I think, I mean, I think part of part of what I come back to at the end of the day with with essays is just I, you know, I is it am I I'm not trying to make a case for it being more valid or less valid for um, to think about American pain or female pain or, or that I have any particular 
claim to access any of these things except I am who I am and I'm mm. writing this essay and this is what I have to say. So insofar mm. as I belong to certain demographic subcategories, like I am part of those sub subcategories. Right. I can't, I can't slough off those like identity snakeskins, you know, but I am, um, mm. but I, it's, it's not necessarily that I'm making a claim for my particular authority. It's just that I'm speaking mm. from the body that I, happen to inhabit hmm. it's it's something you get into in the essay on saccharin both of the the substance and saccharin the the word we use to describe something that's too cheaply emotional i mean it's 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 easy to simply react to something that's trying to make you cry even if you as you mentioned earlier that you have this feeling of crying in a full in a theater full of people doing the same it's it's something else entirely though to to a do that and then b to step back and look at the mechanics of that it makes me wonder if you've read there's a book and you know that series of books 33 and a third on various albums i'm sure you've seen those around so there's this one that i've wanted to read for a long time and i, I haven't somehow yet but it's the one that uh, carl wilson wrote on some Celine Dion album, uh, and the whole book is this is this breakdown of why do we, why do we, we, and then again we have the question of who is we, but why do we so despise the emotions that Celine Dion uh, minds in her music? You know, I guess that's a good example. Celine Dion is probably a good example of the saccharin made music, but is is that a question for you? I mean, in the essay you get close to it, but. This question of not why do we disrespect the saccharin, but why do we almost revile it? Yeah, I mean, I... And who's we? Yeah, yes, I know. Every question begets another question. Mm. Um, I am am interested in that question of um, what what is repellent about excessive emotion. And in that sense, you know, I was was actually just having a conversation with... um, an editor about the possibility of writing sort of another piece about um, MFAs and the question of whether or not writing can be taught. And I was sort of saying, you know, I think I might be all used up on that question. I'm not sure I have anything left to say, but I was like, you know, it might be more interesting to me to phrase it or uh, tackle it, not from, well, can writing be taught, but tackle it from the angle of why are we so uncomfortable or why are some people uncomfortable with the idea that writing can be taught? And I think that there's a similar kind of double negative mm. logic mm. at play in my interest in sentimentality, which right. is that I'm not, I'm not necessarily even in that peacemaking and trying to defend what's sentimental. I'm trying to think about what gets lost in mm. our like, when we act out of our repulsion for the sentimental. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are just kind of slightly distinct, um, distinct points. Um, mm. Now, this, I mean, this is an important point. Listeners wouldn't probably know just to listen, but it's, we were, I think we're just about exactly the same age. Our, would you say our generation is, would we do more of that than other generations? We do more of acting out of our, our out of our revulsion toward sentimentality and the whole suite of, of feelings that goes along with that. The suite of feelings. Yeah. Um, yes, uh, as it were. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I certainly feel like we, and I guess now by yeah. we, I mean, people born in the mid 1980s. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Early to mid. Yeah. Um, I do. I do think that, 
there was a, a, you know, a kind of, um, a reign of irony and a sense of the shame of being too emotional, the, mm. the, the sense or fear that being too emotional would also make things, um, overly simplified. Um, you know, and, and I, I mean, these are fascinating questions to me. Like, what's the problem with something being too emotional? I guess that it loses nuance or complexity, that it seems maybe like an ask that like mm. when something's too emotional, it's begging for a certain kind of response, either sympathy or just, you know, this idea of, um, a text or a film or whatever art object being manipulative because it's trying to elicit a certain kind of response. Like that's so interesting to me. Cause like, couldn't you also think of eliciting emotional response as a gift rather than a manipulation? Like, mm-hmm. um, yeah. So sort of where those, where those apprehensions come from. And I do think that the kind of rise of the workshop model, um, has also affected that because it just, it kind of deepens, it creates the constant specter of how will my work be evaluated? And of course you have some version of that specter, even without a workshop, because you're always thinking, oh, well, okay, if somebody reads this, what are they going to think of it? But mm-hmm. I think having that model of now we're all gathered in a room dissecting how this piece works, kind of it, when you fall, when you fall on the sword of being too emotional, you fall even harder if it's happening around this kind of mm. hyper intellectualized workshop table. Mm. Now you were at uh, you were at the Iowa Writers Program, right? Yeah, I was. So I read an art, and it wasn't an article; it was a letter Kurt Vonnegut wrote whenever it was he was teaching there. He just got done teaching there, writing to a colleague who was about to start teaching there, and he said, "Make sure you leave." every so often because the cornfields get to you. Uh, would you say the cornfields get to you? <laughs> yeah, I, yes. I, th- I think that I can imagine some of the things that might have meant for him. Um, uh, there is, I mean, there's, there, there are big wide open skies out there and big wide open land. And that can feel sometimes like incredibly expansive and full of possibility and full of kind of this sublime remoteness and isolation, but, um, sometimes it can feel, you feel kind of like you're in an, on a little tiny Island with a hundred other writers and some, you know, fraternities and sororities. And there you are in the middle of all these cornfields and that, that you can sort of feel your distance from, from points West and East and North and Mm. South. Um, but I also think, you know, I mean, I, I, I love the cornfields too. And uh, that's something to say. Um, and I, I, you know, I lived in Iowa city twice. Um, I spent four years there total. So it's held, it's held a lot of my, it's held a lot of my life mm. as well. What do you think the people there in, amid the sea of cornfield, <laughs> uh, what are they, what are they looking for sitting in those circles, workshopping their stories? Well, I think, um, you know, I mean, Peers is a, is a big and important answer to that question. Um, people who will read your work, um, who can read your work in ways that are useful and helpful. Um, so peers in the sense of fellow readers, also peers in the sense of, I mean, one of the things that was most valuable to me about my time at Iowa was leaving Iowa, having relationships with other people who were going to have to go through the same sort of birth pangs and birth adjustments that I had, where you go from, like the womb of the workshop to, okay, now I need to make money and still try to write. And just having people in your life who are also facing those questions is really, I I found that to be very helpful um, and kind of 
consoling in certain ways, or at least it gave you a feeling of not being alone in it. Um, mm. And so I think that, I think that sense of kind of camaraderie is, is so camaraderie kind of aesthetic editorial feedback. Um, but I also think, you know, part of, part of what you're looking for at Iowa or at any workshop is almost the permission to take yourself seriously as an artist, because the truth is like, if you, I mean, it sounds like, you know, this from your own life and your own attempts, but like, if you are not going to take yourself seriously as a writer, really nobody else is. And it's not even about ego or hubris. It's just about you taking yourself seriously enough to say, I am going to, you know, push aside other parts of my life to make the sacred space for this activity. I, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and that act of prioritizing, it's hard. It's hard when you haven't been published. It's hard when you have been published, but Mm -hmm. it's, it's hard when the world isn't giving you a ton of affirmation, but you have to keep claiming Mm -hmm. space and time anyway. And so I think a, a workshop structure can just give you a little bit of a buffer underneath that necessary, I think, self-assertion. Mm. Yeah. My mind keeps going back to that image of everybody crying in a movie theater. <laughs> For some reason, I, <laughs> I, yeah, I think that's, if I, if I were to point to my own discomfort with that, I just think back to childhood where, I don't know why, but as a kid, I was always thinking I had to sort of pantomime the emotions of what I thought a kid was. So it's like, I wonder what a kid would, would a kid cry here? Would this when huh. a kid would get angry? Huh. And eventually, you know, get into your teen years and it's a little bit like you look at yourself in the mirror and it's like, should I be, should I be doing this anymore? Should I really be like, yeah. <laughs> like acting? But eventually I gave myself uh, permission to not uh, do that. And you know, what you, what you see before you is essentially the range I have, but it's better than, it's better than, I, I don't know, is this a kind of story you've heard much in your huh. com- conversations about, uh, about ex- emotions expressed and other- otherwise with friends, not that you've been repressed, but that you had to do the exact, you felt, fr- you know, friends who felt they had to do the opposite too huh. long. Do you know what I mean? Because of course we know. Create, create, right. create the right <laughs> feelings, even if they weren't necessarily feeling well, them. Is that kind of what you mean? Well, go back to, you know, opinions on movies and music and such. If you recall in high school, I mean, I think everybody has this, they feel this pressure to, you better, you better like, you better pick bands to like and like them a lot. And you better hate the other bands. Yeah. So none of us, I think really can, can back up those strong positions. And yeah. we, I mean, I certainly shed them. I think we all do at a certain point. Cause if you don't, you become sort of freakish, but it's the same with, you know, it's the same with the whole thing where either, yeah, as I say, we hear a lot about people who repress their emotions, but there's probably this big other half, at least so I assume, with people who uh, artificially inflate them and have to deflate it. Do you think yeah. that's do you think that's true? Yeah, well I and I'm I'm fascinated by that as well. I mean I think any anywhere anywhere that I feel or hear a should lurking of any kind. This is what a, this is what a kid should feel at this point in the movie. This is, this is how somebody should behave at a funeral. I'm, I'm interested and I'm a little peeved. I think, I think, I think because I do think, I think there's a real violence embedded in moments when we are told or tell ourselves because of some kind of internalized nebulous imperative that, that we should feel a certain way. I think there's a lot of damage that happens there because I think that feeling is really surprising and complicated and people are always feeling a mix of things at any given moment or always feeling weird, you know, kind of threads of happiness that otherwise sad moments are feeling like some pang of loneliness at what should be their happiest moment. Mm. And I think, what should 
what the concept of should threatens to do is banish, like banish those complicating mm. feelings or banish those feelings that are cross vectors or make us feel like we shouldn't be having them. And so I don't know when you were talking about your childhood emotional life, I was, I, I felt for, you know, whatever kid I was constructing in my own head, who probably wasn't you, but you know, I was, I was feeling for this kid who felt like he was under some obligation to feel like how a kid was supposed to, to display feel. it anyway, Yeah, to display it. And, mm-hmm. um, and you know, I, 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 if my writing can do anything, part of what I want it to do is make space for the feelings that run against the grain of that should um, kind of mm. grant people the space to have those other feelings too. Mm. And whether in essays or in fiction, it's essentially the same mission is there. Yeah, I do mm. think I do think that that I never quite thought of it like that, but I do think that's right. That there's that kind of making people feel less alone in certain states and emotional states and Mm. also kind of validating a range of emotional states. That is really a common mission between the fiction and the nonfiction. Um, and, and something that I have, uh, loved receiving as a reader as well, Mm. sort of company consolation affirmation and in my own kind of range of feeling states. Mm, they're sort of making a reader feel less alone. That That's an idea that gets so associated with David Foster yeah. Wallace. Now, but he didn't, I mean, he didn't invent it, obviously. I don't know where how far back you can go with that being defined, though. It, it feel, maybe he said it more memorably or more recently than many, but that that had to have been a stated aim very early on, of, mm-hmm. of, of at least the novel, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I am. And I think some of the most affirming moments to me when are, are those moments when somebody who's read, well, anything, the book an essay, the novel, whatever, um, says some version of that, you know, cause it's mm-hmm. like, I mean, I have this whole thing about cliched or familiar ideas. It's mm-hmm. like, I'm all for them because <laughs> I think they show up. So they show up in, in, ideas about people always show up as particular people and those particular people are always, well, it's all 7 billion of us are special or whatever, you know, it's like, so whenever, you know, I was, um, at a, I did a reading recently in Ann Arbor and, you know, this, um, young, probably late teens or early twenties writer, there came up to me and was talking about what the book had meant to her and how it, you know, especially that final essay made her feel like she'd been granted permission to tell certain stories from her own life that had felt, you know, trite or maybe unimportant. And it's that it's something about that permission. Like Mm -hmm. when, when reading a piece of writing can permit something that's really, um, kind of magic to me. And, and I, and I love thinking that maybe I could be the agency behind that magic, at least for somebody every once in a while. I've been speaking here in Santa Monica, California with Leslie Jamison, the author of the gin closet, her first novel, and more recently a book of essays, the empathy exams, Leslie, thanks so much. Thanks for chatting with me. This has been the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast. I've been Colin Marshall. You can keep up with me at colinmarshall.org and the LARB at lareviewofbooks.com. Thanks.